Dotnet Rocks, episode 1108, with guest Karen Johnson. Recorded Monday, March 2nd, 2015. Hey, guess what, Richard? What? It's time for .NET Rocks, but that's I not like really it. what I wanted to tell you. Guess what it's doing outside in the Northeast right now? Snowing. Yeah. That's nice. I don't ever remember having this much snow for this long, as long as I've lived. The weather map on North America is so absurd because the West has had basically no winter. Right. You guys got double winter. Yes. It's full swing spring here. I'm going to be a little jumpy today because I have so many antihistamines in my system to stop me from clawing my eyes out yeah. that I'm just a little vibrating. Well, you heard me talk about AppV Next, right? Yes. So this is a group of developers that I have culled from our listeners. And uh, it was just a little mention in a newsletter and a bunch of people responded. We had a summit here in New London this weekend. And I can't uh, tell you how funny it is uh, hearing about a Floridian driving in snow for the first time. You know, his, <laughs> his passengers being horrified. Uh, a couple of them got stuck on the way back. But the summit itself was a huge success. We sat around a big conference table. We picked an app to write. We cordoned off uh, responsibilities. We set up Git repositories. We developed till 4 o'clock in the morning. Wow. And got a huge head start on this project. That reminds me of your old days running the training group where you guys would all hang together in the evenings, sometimes yeah. go late into the night. That's right. You yeah. got to have missed that, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really nice, especially working with such talented people. They're great. Yeah, that's got to be fun. Yeah. So uh, it sort of relates to the Better Know framework. So let's roll the music. Awesome. All right, buddy, what do you got? So we had a little problem with... Uh, Git projects that were created with Visual Studio Online. So Visual Studio Online website, obviously, where you can tie Git projects to to work items. Right. Very cool. And there's a Kanban board and all that stuff. So that's what we started using. But we just had trouble with the Visual Studio implementation of, um, you know, the, the Git stuff in Visual Studio. And, and I'm not saying that it doesn't work. Right. I'm saying we had trouble with it for some reason. And it turned out the trouble we were having, there wasn't anything on the interwebs that would help us. So it's, you know, it's not, we, we put the error out there that we were getting and there was only one question from somebody who had the same problem, but no answers. Uh-oh. And here's the weird thing. Some of us got it working. Some of us didn't. So sometimes your work items would match to tasks in GitHub and sometimes they won't? Oh, no. We're just trying to clone the repository. Oh, okay. Yeah. We're just trying to get up and running. That didn't work for some of us. All right. So we couldn't really tell what was going on. So in the course of all that, Joel Hewlin, who's one of our developers, suggested we use SourceTree instead. Um, I had used Git for Windows and found that it was a little lacking in control. So he suggested SourceTree. So if you go to sourcetreeapp.com, it's a free Git and Mercurial client for Windows or Mac. Nice. And let me tell you something. It just worked. It would do pushes and pulls and merges and stuff where Visual Studio would not. And I have again, I'm not saying this is a problem because we were obviously doing something that was very unique based on the lack of uh, stuff there was about it on the internet. But this one worked really, really, really well. 
And this is Atlassian. They're, uh, they're, they're quite an interesting company, actually, in terms of the whole cloud development space. I did not know they made this product. I never heard of it either, and I'm very glad that I do now. So there you go. No kidding. And Atlassian, the guys behind Bitbucket, which is a huge, that's what most people know Atlassian for, is Bitbucket. Right. And they also make products, uh, other products like yeah. Stash, Kiln. Yeah, they came, they came out of the Java space, but they've, uh, they've come into the Windows space in a big way, way too. So there you go. That's a great find, dude. Nice one. And it, uh, obviously you guys, I can't wait to see what you guys are building. I think it's going to be cool. Well, I'll tell you what we're building. We're building an app for music to code by. Oh, nice. Yes. And the app will, of course, run everywhere. Mm-hmm. And it will not only let you download and purchase new tracks, but it will help you control your environment when you are working. So it's kind of like a Pomodoro timer on steroids. Nice. Not only will there be a timer, but there's an API, a SignalR API that you can hook that gets you notified when you're playing, pausing, or stopping. So from that, you can, oh, I don't know, make a sign outside your door with a, with a $99 tablet that says, quiet, I'm working now, please don't disturb me. You can put up a message that says, hey, put your cell phone in do not disturb mode. You can write email autoresponders that say, I'm, I'm flowing right now, leave me alone. Yep. Uh, that kind of stuff. You got to incorporate the emotive headset of that so you can actually detect my mental state. You know, those are all options that are up for grabs. So, Absolutely. So we're going to just publish the API and then everybody else can implement their own you know, things that they would do when you're flowing from awesome. that API. Love it. So that's what we're doing. That's cool, dude. All right. No, learn to love it. It's sourcetreeapp.com. Yep. All right. Who's talking to us, Richard? So I didn't actually grab a comment here. Okay. Uh, I had a long conversation on Twitter late last night before we, re- you know, the day before we were recording this show. I'm glad you're going to bring this up. This was a great conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Because you got pulled into that as well. This I was did. Justin King. He's from Sydney, Australia. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about episode 1105, the one we did with on mobile testing with Xamarin mm-hmm. uh, with James Montemagno, which I mean, an episode I really enjoyed. It was a great episode. And obviously, Justin liked it too and went to take a look at Test Cloud, mm-hmm. which I think is an amazing product. There's no two ways about it. Mm-hmm. But the way they've got that thing priced, your sort of minimum buy, it's five bucks an hour, right? Mm-hmm. But you have to buy a minimum of 200 hours. Yeah. And you need to pay for the year. So 200 hours, five bucks an hour, thousand bucks a month times 12, $12,000. Yeah. That's the entry price into that. Now, and you believe me, you can burn through that time. You know, if you're testing on four phones at once yep. for 15 minutes, there's an hour, right? Yep. Try 40 phones. Mm-hmm. So, you know, no question going through it. But Justin's point was, this is not a small amount of money. Now, mm-hmm. I talked, I, we went sort of back and forth on, you know, because I tend on enterprise organizations. So I look at the 12 grand as, you know, that's not a lot of tester. You spend a lot more money on a tester for that. Yeah, that's like a couple of months worth of tester salary. Exactly. Right? And yeah. so that that's not that big a deal. But he did a good job spinning it back to me mm. to put it in the context of if your minimum buy is twelve grand, what's your total spend developing an app? Mm. And how much of that would you put to testing? Mm-hmm. So in like at that price point, I think it's too expensive for if you've got one app that you need to test on multiple phones. Mm-hmm. Like, this is just, it's too big a commitment. Mm-hmm. 
and me, you know, maybe they need to lower the barrier by half or a quarter. Like, I just wonder how, what Xamarin's trying to do there. Mm. Is this really a product for the small teams trying to put apps in the store versus maybe it's more of an enterprise product? If we've, we're making a bunch of apps for our organization, this might make more sense. But I, I really enjoyed the conversation and I encouraged Justin to write a comment on the site so that everybody could read it rather than let, you know, Twitter's sort of ephemeral that way. But considering today's show, I thought I got to talk about this now because it was it was quite enjoyable. And uh, Justin, uh, thank you so much for the conversation. And I would love to send you a .NET Rocks mug. I've or- we've already spoken, so I'll get your address, and a .NET Rocks mug will go out to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website or catch me in Twitter uh, or on any of our mobile apps because we've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone seven and eight, and Windows eight. And if we read your comment on the show, we'll send you a .NET Rocks mug. And uh, Richard, my Twitter handle is at Carl Franklin, and yours is at Rich Campbell. That's right. right. Just uh, so that we we don't have an official .NET Rocks uh, Twitter account. Well, you do have the .NET Rocks show handle, right? No, no, I don't. But we usually just use the hashtag .NET Rocks spelled out, pound .NET Rocks. Yeah. Somebody else has the .NET Rocks handle. Yes. Unless I missed something and somebody gave it to me. No, no, no. The Rocks has still been, is like an orphan one, but there we, I think you had .NET Rocks show at some point. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I, talk to us. It's yeah, easier. it's okay. <laughs> the hashtag is good enough as far right. as I'm concerned. All right. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight is home to the largest technology and creative training library on the planet. They have thousands of developer, IT, and creative courses authored by MVPs and industry experts. They release dozens of new courses every month and offer a 10-day free trial, giving you 200 minutes of access. Pluralsight offers a wide range of developer training courses, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, and pretty much anything you can think of on the Microsoft stack, including lots and lots of testing videos. So try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And that brings us to our guest, Karen N. Johnson. She has worked as a software test consultant for several years. Recently, she joined Orbitz Worldwide Incorporated as Director of Mobile Quality. Karen is a frequent speaker at conferences, a contributing author to the book Beautiful Testing by O'Reilly Publishers, and she has published numerous articles and blogs about her experiences with software testing. She's the co-founder of the REST Workshop, that's W-R-E-S-T, Workshop, and more information on that can be found at restworkshop.com. And you can visit her website at karennicolejohnson.com. Karen, N-I-C-O-L-E, johnson.com. Welcome, Karen. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. We uh, we got you on the show because you're, you're so uh, narrowly focused into mobile testing. We figure that you'd have some uh, great experiences and insights to, to share with us about that. Well, I definitely like talking about mobile testing, so thanks for having me. Um, what do you think, first of all, about the whole ecosystem out there for mobile testing with um, tools like Xamarin's Test Cloud and some other ones that are out there that uh, sort of you know, run your uh, app on lots of hardware devices and then give you the results of those, of, of those tests? Uh, lots of opinions around tools. And, and I have this, uh, I have this sense that I'm going to have a lot of tool vendors reach out to me the rest of the rest of the week. <laughs> yeah, you have after. no idea. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I probably don't. Um, I should probably also say that every, everything that I talk about today, um, 
as a matter of my opinion, not a matter of my employer's opinion. I haven't even been there very long, so it, it certainly doesn't reflect them. Okay. Um, the tool space is really complicated, and I don't think it's really there yet for mobile. It's it's really frustrating. It's watching it come along um, at what feels like a snail's pace at times. I first started working in mobile in 2009, and some of the things I wanted then I still want, and that feels like a really long time ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a long time. Um, Internet time. Of, oh, my gosh. It's like. <laughs> I'm just wondering if we're keeping up. Is it actually getting worse or are we starting to get better? Well, I'm not entirely surprised. I think, you know, we, we've seen this happen in tool spaces before where, you know, like I'll, I'll date myself here. If you go back to web performance testing, you know, first we started out with having the Internet. Nobody was really thinking about performance. Then we started to think about it. The tools were a mess for a while. Um, the market wasn't there. I was kind of laughing when you were talking about this tool and kind of the pricing and the time. I was remembering a time when I had a load testing tool and it came with a 24-hour clock. It was a one-time buy hmm. and it was a 24-hour clock. And you might imagine the question was, was it 24 continuous hours? Like, am I, <laughs> <laughs> am I ever leaving my desk? Like, how's this work? And it literally was a 24-hour clock. Night. Was that Load Runner? I wasn't going to name names, but you got it. Uh, see, I, yeah, I've been through that too. How did I know? It's terrible. I mean, it's yeah, funny. What am I supposed to do, right? Like stay here for 24 hours? So we did. You did. You, you pulled it all nighter because that's when you had yep. the test kills. Right. Which, you know, is not at all. So normally you want to test something. You learn from it, hopefully. You might have to recalibrate what the heck you want to do. And then you want to go again and you can't calibrate when you've got this, you know, the gun of the clock hanging over your head right? without time to say, oh, you know what? I thought I designed that test well. In the case of performance testing, it took a heck of a long time just to ramp up to get to that sort of beautiful state that we wanted to be in. Right. And now the clock is burning while we try to do that again. So, I, you know, I've seen the tools just go through kind of a slow process and they're doing the same thing in the mobile space. I, I put a comment out to Twitter and asked people, what would you like me to talk about? And tools popped as one of the first things. Right. So I, I decided to build my own little wish list, right? Okay. My, my own fantasy. Um, with the hope that some tool vendors hearing this and I feel like there's marketing people out there who are going to say, but we already have that. Right. Yeah, we'll see. Well, that's okay. We we want to know that too. So, you know, leave comment on the website and tell us what's what's going on in your world. Yeah. All right. So my list is pretty short. It's only about five tools. So the first thing I want is I want a free, I don't expect to have to pay for this one, a free and easy screenshot taker. Okay. And no, we don't really have those. We do and we don't. I mean, obviously, you know, this allegedly, and that's a big word here allegedly simple ways to do a screenshot on lots of devices, but there's a lot of problems with those in terms of not really being able to get the screenshot or it doesn't happen fast enough. And then, you know, the state you were in is gone. It's just not there yet. And I think one of the things that's kind of obvious that's frustrating to me is we're talking about devices that have a built-in camera. Right. Yeah. Just saying. <laughs> and they take pictures of the screen because the camera's in the wrong place. Well, they do take pictures of the screen, but it requires a uh, user interaction. And that's okay with me because I don't want software taking pictures of my screen and sending it places. 
Well, that is true too, but I want to be able to get a screenshot. And as you might imagine, if I want to sit down with a developer, I want to be able to draw like, you know, a red line or maybe a blue line over and circle something and say, you know, this error message is, you know, blah, 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 whatever the case may be. Sure. So I want a screenshot markup tool. And I kind of have cheap workarounds for it right now, but I'm not in love with any of those. Mm. And that to me is just stuff you need coming out of the gate. And it's going to be different for every device. I mean, that's part of the problem here. I guess it's always a problem with mobile is all the devices are different, at least a little bit. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, the next thing I want is it was the cheap tool we had back in the day for the desktop, and that is the scenario recorder. So in the 80s, I think it was, at conferences, we spent a lot of time talking about capture playback tools and how they were not desirable because things would happen in the playback and you need to be able to go in and truly code as opposed to just, you know, making a capture. That said, I'd be happy with a cheesy uh, capture playback tool now with just the sense of it being a throwaway recorder. You know, I'm not going to be able to keep it forever. I'm not expecting to go in and necessarily tweak it, but I, but I just want to be able to do that. And there are times when I'm testing that I'd like to be able to turn that on and, ha and knowingly have it run in the background so that I can capture things, whether it's keystrokes or gestures or whatever is going on. And I'm willing to live with the cheap and dirty version of that at this time. Right. Although having a heat map on a phone would be cool, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, now you're getting into really dream state. <laughs> I want it all. I want it all. Well, speaking of all, um, I want an app recorder that will tell me all the apps that are running on the device at the time X was happening. Right. And and I don't understand why we can't have that. That, to me, seems like that should be very easy to grab. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, um, by the way, I talked to before about browsershots.org. This is for mobile web, you know, mobile and regular websites, but it does give you screenshots of all uh, your website running on all these devices similar but you know not native apps obviously but yeah. that's that kind of thing that you want for for native apps as well and you just want to be able to take a picture for free is that what you're saying i do i just want a picture preferably to be able to mark it up and highlight you know what the problem is because you know, attaching a screenshot where a developer has to think maybe sometimes a little bit too much about what's the problem here yeah, well, this, we always get in this can't reproduce problem, right? That's always a problem in the testing space. And that's not yeah. really unique to mobile, but it's certainly exaggerated in the mobile space, at least at this time. And I yeah. think there'll be a day that that will settle down. I think a lot of it is we don't, as a community, both testers and developers always understand what all the variables are that we should even be looking at at the time something goes astray. Well, and part of this is we're still constrained by these mobile devices. Like, I don't care too much what's running on a desktop machine anymore because there's so much memory. It's it's usually working. That's not the issue, right? It's something else. But the phone's still a phone. It hasn't got that much room in it. And let's face it, Android's remarkably good at having a lot of stuff running really slowly. True. And there's other things going on. It's not just... It's not just other apps running. It's, you know, those incoming texts, those incoming notifications. There's a lot of chaos in the ecosystem. Yeah. You've got the GPS switched on, and that's sucking down the battery. Like, yeah, there's a, it's a lot of moving parts in a phone. It's, it is a very Swiss army knife-ish. It is. And I don't think that we have a sense right now of what those variables are to look at. So, you know, for example, I'm on a browser, and I'm doing some testing, and something goes wrong. I have a sense of the kind of things that I need to take a look at and see 
what the state of the state was, but I might not always know what to do in mobile. And when you move from one device to another device, you just don't know the device that well. Sometimes right. that takes time. Well, we used to have this in the PC too. Different PCs had different behaviors. It's maybe just an immaturity in the mobile space. Very much. I think so. I think the other thing is we live in different environments. So I'm a North American and walking around as a North American on an average day, I think we treat it like it's an iPhone Android market. But if I'm in a different country, that market changes tremendously. So yes, even as I talk to colleagues afar, they're not looking at it the way I am. Right, indeed. Yeah, I mean, you have uh, Windows Phone, believe it or not, is is really prevalent in some places in Europe and uh, not not at all in the United States. Well, much less so anyway. And you still market for BlackBerry and the uh, Koreans have got, was it Tizen or Badu? Like, there's a bunch of other OSs out there. I, I'm still dealing with uh, the cross-plat stuff around um, Adobe's thing, Cordova. Do you do testing against that? Do you find it harder or easier? No, I don't do testing around that. Um, so I can't, I can't answer to that, but I have twice now had to deal with a global situation. So had to think intentionally, not just North American. And the two projects that I'm thinking in my mind back to were very different projects in terms of the user audience. And so therefore what the device market ended up being, but it, it was an eye opener. I know back in 2009, I was doing a lot of analytics on, you know, what, what did we have for users and in different countries, what were they using? And they were using devices I'd never heard of, right. which I think goes back to one of the first questions you asked me about working with folks that have simulators. Like I had right. been working with device anywhere. And the beauty at the time for me was I could get my hands on or virtual hands on devices that I couldn't get here with carriers that I couldn't get here either and somewhat try to replicate situations. How do you deal with um, functionality on phone apps that do things like purchase, in-app purchases or stuff where you have to actually interact with the vendor? Do, are, are those mocked, basically, for testing purposes? Well, So here's one of the things about testing that I think is interesting, mobile aside, I think when you talk to someone who has worked as a consultant, it's very different than when you talk to somebody who's been an employee somewhere. So for people who've been an employee, they would either yes, no to that, either that's a space they're in, and they've had to worry about that, and they can answer, you know, really good questions, or no, you know, that's not the way our app works. It's not something I've had to think about. For me, I've been switching context so many times in the last eight years to spend whole pockets of time when I haven't looked at mobile at all, even in just the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. And then times when all of a sudden I'm back in doing a deep dive because, you know, I'm on a contract and I'm working on something. So the in-app purchase as such is not a space I've had to be concerned about from a testing perspective, certainly as a, as a consumer. I have. So I think that's probably affected my testing. And I think that's something that it's a subtle thing, but I think it makes a big difference for all the conversations that both of you probably have with people is where have they been working and have they been there a long time? Because once you're somewhere for a while, that becomes your whole domain and context. Right. I, I'm still constantly switching mine enough that I don't even have a normal context. I can't say, oh, you know, I've never had to be concerned about that 
Um, or yeah, that's a space I've been in. I, I change projects too frequently um, to be able to even look at that. I haven't had to deal with that, but I could imagine that I might at some point in the future. Well, part of the challenge you deal with in-app purchases is every every store's emulator is different. Right? Like I've, I've, uh, I've not had to do in-app purchases on mobile apps, but I've done transaction processing on websites of every kind. And each, it's not even any given credit card. It's each bank has a different emulator. And it's just, you've got a code for all of them. I think that is one of the one of the challenges people have been asking me about, um, and I want to talk about is like what some of the challenges are in testing mobile. And obviously, the top one comes in is there's so many devices and there's so little time, and I think right. people feel just scattered about trying to figure out what can we skip because we clearly can't do it all. And then it's interesting. I've been in some companies where they're not even remotely worried about it. Everyone just it has a BYOD, they pull out their own device, they start testing, and it's like, well, that's nice because that's what you own. But have you looked at your user analytics? Right. <laughs> yeah, your user isn't you. That's right. <laughs> yeah, you're not normal. You know this, right? So, yes. you know, and I guess I'm, my advice in that would be the same as it's kind of always been, which I think frustrates people. But the reality is you have to go to your user analytics to really see what devices people are using, what markets they're coming in from. Right. And I think what's frustrating about that is, A, sometimes you can find out it's a really fragmented market and then you feel overtaxed from a testing point of view, like how the heck am I going to do that? Nice to know, but I don't think I can do it. And the second is nice to know, but I can't get my hands on that device. Right. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yep. Time to test my new app that tests all the apps on my phone by running them simultaneously. <laughs> Oops. Out of memory. Yeah. Hmm. So apparently my app's too big. Imagine that. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually time to give away a Telerik DevCraft collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, Telerik DevCraft is the most complete .NET toolbox for web, mobile, and desktop development. With the addition of UI for Xamarin to the DevCraft bundle, you can create compelling native mobile experiences with your C-sharp skills. Download a free trial at tinyurl.com slash devcrafttrial. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Craig Bennett. Congratulations, Craig. Golf clap for you, sir. Yep. No clappers today, sorry. No clappers. Just claps. Uh, Craig just won the Telerik DevCraft collection. That's a huge pile of awesome from Telerik. And if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology in the form of a shopping spree to one lucky member of that fan club, but you have to join to win. And we also like to ask our guest, Karen, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, you know, toys, what would you buy? Oh, that is such a hard question. You mentioned that question to me ahead of time, and I, I started very carefully tallying up where I would spend it because I knew it wasn't going to be enough money. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so because I'm a North American and I'm based here, I, I would probably split it, uh, two thirds on iOS and, uh, and Android. Um, if I was somewhere different, if I was in Europe, I'm sure my answer would be very different. 
Sure. But, but here it is what it is. And it's almost an easy answer, right? Because I certainly need an iPhone. I certainly need a tablet. I probably want a mini. And then I probably want a MacBook, MacBook Air, because I need to see how's it working on the desktop. You're not even getting Android yet. You, oh, you're I done. Know. Oh, I know. No, <laughs> no, no. I, I tallied a 3,000. I still have two left. Okay. <laughs> ah. She's done her homework, Richard. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Couldn't spend enough. Um, the next would be a Samsung, uh, which is my latest personal new phone as well. Um, love their devices. Or maybe maybe I'd pick up an LG. I don't know. Um, but same thing. I'm going to need a phone. I'm going to yep. need a watch. I'm going to need a tablet and probably a mini tablet. And so I probably would have to go back. So I calculated that, by the way, as 2000 So I exactly spent every penny. Wow. <laughs> I'm impressed. <laughs> so you're basically building your own drawer of broken dreams. Uh, no, future drawer of broken dreams. Yes. Actually, I have a box next to me that looks just like that. It even has a BlackBerry in it. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's proof right there. Don't worry. My Palm Pilot's not still in that box. But <laughs> wow. <laughs> but there is a BlackBerry in it, and there's no Windows phone. Sorry. No there's Apple no Newton? No, no. I'm old, but not like <laughs> there's a limit. <laughs> Maybe some old Fig Newtons, but uh, <laughs> that's my box, actually. I would like to talk about wearables if we can. Absolutely. Because sure. you brought them up there. The Apple Watch is imminent. There's a zillion Android devices. Or do you mean watch when you say wearable? Well, um, that's a good question. I there's, there's a little soapbox thing I think I want to say about wearables. And I went to a recent wearables event. And something happened there that you never see in a mobile event or any other kind of tech event. And that was each person who got up and spoke talked about why. And I love that. I love mm-hmm. that in the wearable space, people have to see it, get it, and have that, ah, oh, yeah, right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, okay. Right. Because there's still a big discussion around whether wearables make any sense. I know. That's, that's a big thing. But I think that's awesome because I've never seen a technology come along where people question it. Usually, there's just people going out, grabbing it, buying it, and then, you know, we go through the regular market thing of those who are fast and those who are slow. Right. But in the wearable space, I feel like everyone's saying why first, which I think is really cool. Yeah, like we're banging up against the limit of how many devices did you want to have on you? Yeah, that's why I get pulled by security when I'm flying, because I think they think, like, what is going on over there? (laughs) (laughs) So, what's the threshold? How many devices are you carrying in that bag? Um, right now I probably, on a, just a personal daily basis, I probably have like five devices with me most right. of the time. So the one wearable I have is, um, I have a Fitbit, although I, I'm kind of regretting that I didn't buy a Pebble because I think they're just, they're, they're cool. And what's interesting, and I want to share this cause I don't think I'm alone. I think what I bought my wearable for is not what I ended up liking my wearable for. Oh. So I, I bought it thinking I was going to pick up on some health stuff, but what I'm really liking it for is the fast notifications that come in for things that are going on on my phone that at the moment are buried in a pocket, but I'm in a meeting and it looks pretty rude to pull it out. I'm on a train. I only have one hand available, but right. I can glance at my wrist and I'm like, right. oh, pff, I can let that call go. No problem. Mm-hmm. And I'm loving that. And I didn't think I would care. Well, it's easier to turn your wrist and look than it is to pull out your phone, figure out who's calling you and hit a button that, you know, or whatever. 
It's just as easy. I'd like to keep my phone in my pocket as much as possible, actually. Yeah. Yeah. The only problem is, you know, I'm in meetings and like parts of me are vibrating and making noise and people are looking at me. <laughs> well, you know, can you turn the vibration <laughs> off completely and then just use your Well, I can, but it's your wrist. You know, yeah. I can. But of course, it's kind of fun to watch people react because they see, true. you know, they see the noises coming from all over the place. But I think the whole thing in wearables is I think there's a lot of people who think that's not me. That's ridiculous. I'll never do it. It sounds silly. How much of this do we really need? All the way until they get it and say, oh, that's really cool. I'm not sure how I got by before. Yeah. Is it a blessing that devices tend to be more input constrained than traditional desktop apps? You know, I guess when we're testing mobile devices, really the UI tends to be the focus of, in other words, the UI size, the the look of a button on this device versus that device, that kind of thing. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't really have a reaction to that question. I guess the first thing that comes to my mind is accessibility. You know, I know a lot mm. of people, not just wearing them now, but a lot of people worried about ADA compliance. Um and that's certainly a concern. We get into smaller and smaller devices, it's how people are going to manage them. And whether it's somebody who just happens to have a broken arm at the time or somebody who's carrying a kid or whatever the situation is, and they just, they're constrained at that time. I mean, as right. we get into smaller devices, it gets, it gets to be a challenge. But as far as from a testing perspective, I think we'll certainly be testing wearables. I think it's coming incredibly soon. Sure. It'll, by the end of this year, obviously, you know. I, I just noticed that, you know, in a web app or a Windows app or a desktop app, input is so evil that you really have to do a lot of your handling of that and, and constraining on the server side. But when you have a native app, it seems like the native apps that I use, like if there's going to be a, a date, there's always a calendar. There's never an option for somebody to enter a date from a keyboard. And if there is a keyboard, let's say for an email address, it's just limited to the subset of characters that that uh, include the at sign, et cetera, that an email address can be. Like there seems to be so much more uh, effort put on constraining input on mobile devices that we don't necessarily do on the web or in, uh, uh, in a desktop application. Well, I think there's two sides to it. One, I think we're trying to make it easier for people, and we know that it's not going to be as easy, you know, on a smaller device. And the other is security. And I'm, let's use it as a segue to talk about mobile security because I think there's a, a serious lack thereof, um, sure. which is it's really surprising. I mean, even if you go out and you try to find, you know, current things on books or testing practices, you're not going to find anything. And and that's really concerning. I, I was recently offered an option on, on my banking app to be able to view all my account balances without having to log into my bank account. Hmm. And that didn't make you happy? Yeah. No, it did not make me happy at all. <laughs> it made me very concerned. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. I didn't think that was so great. I, I think we're incredibly behind. And I'm, I feel like I'm one of the few persons on the planet that actually goes to the the stores, both the stores, all the stores, um, and takes a look at what this, like, what data are you collecting? And why are you collecting this? It's not right. at all relevant to your app. And are you doing it because you can get away with it? Right. It, it's, it's very troubling to me, especially when you see, you know, horrible stories in the news about bits of data that get out on people. You know, my advice to, to app builders is don't take any more than you need to. Mm -hmm. Like, don't e just don't even have it. 
Yeah, you don't you don't want it. It's it's just a risk for you ultimately. Yeah, I think so. I think what's happening right now is there's not a lot of restraints on it. So I think a lot of app developers are saying, well, we can take it. We might as well. We might do something with it later. And my reaction is don't take any more than you need to. Well, and I don't know that it's actually a planned thing or the, you know, the dev on his first take at the app just grabbed everything and never dialed it back. Yeah, I agree. You know, it's, it was enough to make the app work much less anything right. It's not like it's going upstairs to say, what's an appropriate privacy policy? What's the right things? What do we absolutely have to have? That whole mindset. And, you know, I'm only just now starting to see a few apps where they don't demand all the permissions up front, where it's as you use a feature, it's like, hey, to make this feature work, I need this additional permission. Is that okay? Right. This is stuff that the um, app stores can or cannot test. My my uh, or, or can't look at in order to say yes that app is uh, worthy of the app store I, I find the whole first of all I find the whole idea of an app store really compelling and probably one of the reasons why we have so much input constraint and we have uh, such um, how shall I say better behaving apps in the mobile space than we do just in web and desktop because because of that curation but where do you draw the line? Where does where does it come and become impossible for the app stores to vet you completely in terms of security? I think they're already there. I don't think there's any way they can really keep up with it. I don't even know if, you know, that's their responsibility per se. Sure. I mean, obviously that's their intent be and it's certain they certainly have an incentive to do so because they don't want to release Apple doesn't want to release uh, insecure apps to their store. So it must be, it must come down to their ability. I mean, they're obviously not going to test it for you, but they want to make sure that, that it isn't going to, you know, memory leak and it's not going to reach out and grab somebody else's data, et cetera. They obviously have to do tests for that. But why is the app store really so different? If you think about it, if you think about like Amazon selling, gosh, only knows how many products, we don't even remotely expect that they have tested out every, you know, pair of shoes, every electronic device they sell. We don't expect that we recognize their storefront. You know, they probably try to vet it to some extent. But after that, you know, buyer beware. And why do we think the app store would really be in any position to be better than that either? Well, here's why. Because Amazon doesn't have a physical product that they can look at, test, and do anything with. But an app store has the code. You know, they, they can look and see what you're doing. And to a certain extent, I know Microsoft is doing that this with their vetting process. But I think it's a good point, though, Karen, that you bring up. The way that uh, websites like Amazon deal with it, of course, is after the fact. You know, by looking at comments, if there are enough complaints... And comments. I mean, the, those those comments and ratings are key and critical for for Amazon because they don't have any way to to really vet stuff other than looking around on the internet and finding out if this uh, these people are shysters or whatever. Yeah, I mean, it'd be nice to go to the app store and feel like, oh, I'm in a safe playground. Everything here has been checked out, but I'm just a little too skeptical of that. I'm with you. Yeah, I mean, my, Apple has made a point of saying that they have a strong vetting process, where Google has said it's totally crowdsourced, right. only through complaints. Like that, and I feel like I don't know. Microsoft seems to be falling more on the Apple side because there's an implicit thing there. It's the Apple App Store, right? So True. there's a certain level of well, then this must be okay. 
And it's a strong idea of this is the whitelisting model instead of the blacklisting model. Mm. The only things that are allowed to come on this device come from this app store. So they're quote unquote safe as opposed to blacklisting where anything can come on, but we'll fight back on the things that are bad. Right. And both are great approaches and you probably do need both, but it's, it becomes more and more difficult for them to do the, the vetting up front. Ultimately, you're the consumer. Right. So I think you really have to kind of take some of that yourself. And it's amazing to me how many people will download anything without even looking at it. Like, who is this developer? You know, would you do that on your desktop? Apparently they do. They'll click on anything. Well, this brings up another interesting thing, which is uh, ratings and comments in app stores Mm. basically go away every time you, I don't know about other ones, but I think the iOS one goes, all those comments go away when you release a new version. Well, comment about App Store reviews and comments, you know, so as a longtime conference speaker, it's kind of weird. I really want the feedback after I speak somewhere, but I've noticed over the years that I tend to get like two buckets of comments. There's either people who who find um, someone they can really relate to, they, they like what I say, you know, they're kind of thumbs up. And then there'll be another group that, you know... I don't know. They don't like anything I say. I've I've even had somebody write, you know, she wore jeans when she was presenting. It's like, okay, I mean to take all your reviews seriously, but some of these I just have to throw away. Like I I have found I have to toss out the top 10% and the bottom 10%. Right. Because they're just extreme. Right. Whether it's praise or hate, they're both extreme. The 80% in the middle is at least actionable or a little more understandable. Exactly. And I think when I see the app, like some of the app comments that I read, I really want to pull them apart into, are you complaining about the product, which is fine and legitimate, or are you complaining about the mobile app? And that's, they're different. And I noticed that most people on the market don't seem to have the ability to separate them. And and I get it. I understand why, but it, it doesn't make it less frustrating trying to be actionable on comments that are made. Yeah, you want to be responsive, but can you? I know. You know, I know. I, I sit and I read comments and, you know, a lot of times I'm sitting here kind of shaking my head like, okay, I see your point, but it's not relevant to, you know, anything we can do something about. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about testing and I want to bring up a, a word that I I don't know if has been brought up before, but that's... And I'm sure colleagues of mine who know me well will be smiling going, of course, she's going to talk about heuristics. <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> okay, here we go. There's nothing like a short lesson in Greek. Yep. Um, so, a heuristic is a rule of thumb. It's just this big, scary Greek-based word that is just a rule of thumb. And we use them all the time in kind of our everyday life. And we don't think a whole lot about them or we don't even call them that. We just kind of think of it as, you know, some kind of guidance that's out there. And here's a split that happens in testing a lot. A lot of times in the olden days, pre-mobile, we'd be writing test cases where it was, you know, do X, Y, Z, expect this result, pass, fail. And from a distance, people who are not in the testing space, that's what they think testing is. And that is why a lot of times people will say, well, you might as well hire the cheapest help you can because we're pretty much telling you what to do. Just go press this like anybody could. Just go do this. If you're really thinking and you're not following a script and you're not just doing something that somebody already thought out and wrote, another way to test is by using something in the testing community we refer to as testing heuristics. And it's a practice 
And it works really well for some people and not for others. And I'd like, I'd like to explain. A lot of the heuristics that have been created, people will come up with some kind of like an acronym or a mnemonic to be, to be able to remember it. So I'll give you an example of one that's known in the mobile space. Its little nickname is Cop Flung Gun, which sounds ridiculous. They're three words that wow. don't really belong together. I know. We're getting all deep now. Okay. So if you break it down, it's COP, communication, orientation, platform. Flung is function, location, user scenarios, network, gestures. And gone is guidelines, updates, and notifications. Hmm. So what you do when you use a heuristic is you take each one of those words, one at a time, and think through what you might need to test. And so no one's telling you exactly what you need to do. You need to think. And you need, you need to think hard and clear about this. So you might use communication and say, oh, there could be messaging. There could be text messages coming in. There could be, you know, maybe even a call or some other communication. Maybe there's an email. And does the email match the text notification that I'm getting? There's a test scenario I need to check out. And you go through and you do the same thing for all of them. You know, you get to, you know, say updates. And you might say, well, has the operating system updated? Are we pushing an update? How does, you know, how's that working? And there might be some test scenarios there. And so you can draw out all these tests that you want to run without ever writing a test case. Making sense so far? It's interesting, yeah. Just a different way of thinking through the problem. But you have to be really, really thinking. You cannot yeah. be somebody who's just executing, not really thinking anymore. You're just doing what you've been told to do. And when it comes to heuristics and it comes to mobile, to me, they're a perfect pairing. It's such a dynamic environment to test what I call the old-fashioned way of test cases with every step detailed out. And to try to do that on mobile just seems like a crazy combination to me. Well, I think part of this is because you're coming from testing in a PC world, you're sitting in an office in a cubicle in front of a PC, which is, you know, where the app was probably always going to be used. But as soon as you're testing in mobile and you're sitting in an office in a cubicle holding a phone right. with with no traffic and no noise and no distractions, like you're not in the same test environment. I know. We so badly need to unleash our testers from working in an office with fully charged devices and location services, you know, not flipping in and out of where they are. And it's just right. such a terrible, terrible way to test mobile. I mean, it's a good, you know, good happy path situation. It's kind of like using the simulators. You know, it's it's great for developers doing unit testing. It's good happy path, but you got to get out of the office. Yeah. And you got to get into crappy connectivity. Yep. And you've got to get into one-handed use and noise and, you know, the stuff that the app is really going to be in. Yeah, you've got to be real. You've got to be using it the way it's going to be used. And there's no faking it out on this one. But I, I also like this idea of, you you know, the heuristic you went through there has a, a part of this that's about coherency. That when I do this, how do I get notified? You know, how does it connect with me? When the connection is unstable, what do we do differently? How do we respond to that? You know, object not found on your phone isn't good. Right. The other reality is most of the teams, doesn't matter where I work, most teams these days are agile and they're trying to figure out how to get testing done in a sprint. 
Right. And so the way I look at it is if you do this combination of exploratory testing, so getting rid of the test cases, you figure out heuristics and you ask the team questions, you can easily, on a post-it note, on your Agile board, separate some of these things so that when testing potentially becomes a bottleneck, even one of the developers who may be developed in some other corner of the app can say, oh, I can go do that. Mm-hmm. And now you can get through your sprint and, you know, it's not, it's not a problem. So one of the things I'm seeing more and more uh, outside of the mobile space, desktop development, websites, and so forth, is we're instrumenting the production apps in detail, right down to the user's machine. I'm collecting stats on every browser that's hitting the site, what their sequences and so forth were. Do you see us getting there with mobile? Like, isn't this the ultimate solution is to continuously instrument? Ah, I, that would be nice. What I'm seeing right now is a lot of beg borrowing and stealing, you know, contacting <laughs> somebody in a different country and saying, can you please do X, Y, and Z? Right. You know, which goes back to using test cases. And, you know, one of the problems sometimes in having people who are not testers jump in and, and share in the testing for whatever reason, they're on a device and I can't get there. They don't know what to do. And so we have to come up with ways that we can get them to be really productive because they'll typically do, you know, a couple of happy path things that they've thought of. Maybe they'll come up with one sort of edge case. And then they basically, from a distance, are looking at you with a blank face saying, is there something else you need? And by the way, I have a day job. Yeah, yeah. right. Karen, uh, we have a, a tweet uh, from Dave Vanderboom. How would the perfect mobile testing dashboard look? In other words, what are the most important indicators and metrics? Oh, my gosh. What a hot question. Um, it's, it's currently a, a question that I'm puzzling over myself. And I've been finding that there's not always a lot of agreement on that. Um, when I want to give an example, so typically on a, on a testing dashboard, you're going to see number of defects, kind of the obvious one that pops to mind. Yeah. Um, what, what I often try to do is teach people why metrics don't always work and why there's other non metric ways to measure things. So I could have one critical defect in production in a particular month or post a particular release, but that one defect might be that the app crashes. So clearly quantity doesn't matter. Like it's a misnomer. I look at a dashboard, I have one bug. I'm like, whatever, one bug, not so bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it doesn't work is could be really horrible. So yeah. other measures that might be more telling are taking a look at the distribution and five star ratings versus one star. And it's not even, you know, I've got 300 reviews. It's more, you know, 200 of those reviews are saying that, I'm dealing with a four or five star app. And like you said earlier, tossing out that top 10% and bottom 10% because, you know, they're just kind of not relevant. They're noise. Right. On the other hand, the guys you're giving you one star reviews are the ones that probably doesn't work on their phone. Huh. You just have to, you have to read them carefully. You really do. Yeah. And, and there's no vetting to know that it's not your competitor getting out there and writing some comments too, right? Yes. Well, nasty grams you can't do anything with, but. Uh, you know, I ran into this scenario. What was the tool I was using? Preemptive analytics, where we only had, we had a really low failure rate in the field. But when I actually went and looked at the demographic data on the failure rate, it was one particular type of machine mm-hmm. in this organization that was getting a set of consistent errors. And that was the most common machine in the whole organization. 
It's just that most people had told each other, don't bother using the app because it doesn't work on that machine. And nobody had told dev. Right. And so it wasn't until we actually looked at those numbers and realized it was that machine that we could even figure out this is where the problem lies. I got to think that's way worse than mobile. There's certain phones this app doesn't work on. And is anybody going to tell you that? Well, that's like that one critical bug, right? It's like, well, the iPhone app doesn't work. I mean, that's huge. So you really, yeah. you know, when you look at any of the metrics and you look at any dashboard, so I've been trying to train people away from being too too tied up on the numbers and not really understanding anything. And the way I've been currently working that is taking a look at review comments and, and trolling through the comments and trying to find things that are meaningful and sharing those as, hey, this is what we need to be listening to. Right. Let's say you've only tested uh, web apps, right? Which I think a lot of our listeners have that experience. And suddenly they're asked to do some testing on mobile apps, native apps. What's the first thing they have to unlearn? What a great question. Um, Fear and panic are some of the two things that I usually deal with when I'm hiring people in that situation. A lot of times people feel... I haven't done it. I'm not sure. It's like, and I try to tell them, first of all, in, in terms of testing, you're not going to throw everything away that you've ever learned about testing. You're still looking for edge cases. You're still trying to be cognizant of variables that matter, that influence this defect in happening. Like, don't just don't settle down. Don't throw it all away. Think of it as adding to what you know, not so much getting rid of what you've known from the past. Okay. And then the next thing I usually tell people, like I'll ask them, what is your phone and how much do you interact with it? Because if you're not a heavy mobile user personally, you can't just turn that on during the day and then think you're going to come in and and be a great mobile tester. You've got to like live it, love it, eat it, breathe it. You know, that's why in my bag, like my personal bag, it's, it's five devices, right? Like I'm on it all the time. Right. It's just, It's a lifestyle thing almost, you know, and if you really want to come over to the mobile world, I think you have to live it as well. And I think, you know, some people really separate, you know, their personal from their professional. To me, it's kind of, it's a big blend. Well, Karen, an hour has just flown by. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. It's been great talking to you. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a